I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTBR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. All our sensory systems. And then it explodes into this enormous Today, another foray into the wonderful, wild world of Sophie Strand. Sophie Strand is a writer who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology, but it would probably be more authentic to call her a neo-troubadour animist with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. Give her a salamander and a stone and she'll write you a love story. Sophie was raised by house cats, puffballs, 
possums, raccoons, and an opinionated, crippled goose. Sophie is the author of several collections of poetry, and her new book is The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Trans-Species Magicians, and Rhizomatic Harpists, Heal the Masculine. She recently finished a work of historical fiction, The Madonna Secret, that offers an eco-feminist revision of the Gospels that will be coming out this summer. She's currently researching her next epic, a mythopoetic exploration of ecology and queerness in the medieval legend of Tristan and Isolde. I'm going to start with a short reading. This piece is called We Must Risk New Shapes. The shore is a snakeskin of shifting viridescent sheen. The tidal pool's green liveliness singles sun hunger. Convula roscofensis, otherwise known as mint sauce worm, is a phototropic being, no longer dependent on oxygen to live. The worm eats the sun through the photosynthesizing algae platymonis that has infiltrated and stained its sheer flesh permanently green. The fusion of worm body and plant hunger so confounded the Englishman Jay Keeble, who first identified them, that he dubbed the worms plant animals. He called this fusion an infestation and parasitism. But as we learn more and more about our own reliance on our microbiome and the ways in which symbiosis drives biological novelty, the antagonistic terminology of parasitism and infection seem less and less applicable to these intra-bodily negotiations. What is happening between the worm and the algae? The algae live in the worm like an ecosystem, repurposing the uric acid produced as waste by the worm into their own nourishment, dying and lovemaking and community building all within the bounds of another body. These algae then leak their own photosynthetic nourishment into the body of the worm allowing the worm to subsist on translated sunlight. So tightly coupled is this relationship that the worm's mouths have atrophied and are no longer used following the hatching of the worm larva. The mouth, then, is a symbol for a more desperate time, the time before union, the time when the worm was just a worm, nothing else. When do you like your body? I like my body when it is with your body. It is so quite new a thing, muscles better and nerves more, writes the poet E.E. Cummings. Many of us like our bodies best as hybrid, body plus lover, body plus baby, body plus huge body of water. We forget that it is not the wings of the bird that allow for flight, but the bird plus the lifting air. Where does flight live, in the wings or the air, or interstitially between the two? Our bodies become pleasurable, become livable and lovable, not alone, but through material interaction. Isn't it strange, then, that the thing we fear most medically and personally is physical trespass? We fear the infection, the parasite, the physical breach. Body plus is the calculus that allows for pleasure and flight and birth and digestion, but it is also the opening into more ambiguous communions. Those with long-term illness and with a legacy of trauma understand that hybridity is not something you order off the menu. It arrives and makes a home in your body. Suddenly, you are more than you ever thought you could be in ways both terrifying and curious. 
I'm reminded of my favorite mythic couple, Tristan and Isolde. They who were two and divided became one and united. No longer were they at variance, they shared a single heart. They were both one in joy and sorrow, writes Gottfried von Strasberg in his 13th century version of the Tristan and Isolde romance. The two lovers, initially divided by the sea and by conflicting loyalties, suspended in a boat between their warring countries are alchemically fused by accidentally ingesting a love potion. I have long loved Tristan and Isolde and its many textual variations, and I have always felt that the romance, although superficially heterosexual, is decidedly non-heteronormative, lichenized. Across different versions of the legend, the lovers are not portrayed as practicing courtship or as falling in love. Instead, they are fused, chemically bonded, and afterwards they are not a couple. They are a single being. That for the sake of narrative tension, gets stretched and twisted only so that it can violently, dramatically snap back into its original cohesion. A man, a woman, a woman, a man. Tristan is old, is old Tristan, Gottfried writes, suggesting that what has been created is not a romantic union, but a single polygendered, multi-named entity. In an age when the Eurocentric fiction of individuality has deranged our ability to tend to the environments within which we are embedded, it seems important to soften our boundaries, intellectually and bodily. Horrified in the wake of two world wars, poet George Oppen mused, obsessed, bewildered by the shipwreck of the singular, we have chosen the meaning of being numerous. Perhaps... Realizing that we are constituted by webs of relationship, we must see the singular human species as a sinking ship. We must jump overboard into being numerous, into being other beings, into being quite differently. Our very nucleated cells are the product of an ancient intrabodily merger between two bacteria. Evolutionary biologist Lynn Margolis upended linear narratives of evolution when she demonstrated that we are the product of a transversal intimacy, the symbiogenetic fusion of two different prokaryotes. She wrote, in the great cell symbioses, those of evolutionary moment that led to organelles, the act of mating is for all practical purposes forever. While we may congratulate our prokaryotic ancestors on their risky decision to half digest each other's bodies, I can't imagine the original union was comfortable. But as species die out by the hundred every day, we may need to fuse our bodies to other bodies. Symbiosis is often a survival tactic. Species impinged by climatological pressures and scant resources try to eat each other, fail, and at some point along the way begin to co-become. The narrative is neither neat nor heartwarming. It is fraught and it often fails. But the other option is starvation and extinction. The singular species is a shipwreck. Symbiosis is always a risk and it has a cost. The shape you recognize, the familiar boundaries of your own mind. Life is a process of addition, a concatenation of matter. Even your solitary self must inhale air. Where does life live? In the air or your lungs? In a time when safety has become the goal of psychology and political discourse, paired with the talismanic abstraction of boundaries, I want to offer that becoming new is never safe. 
Survival is never safe. It is always a breach, a break in the skin. It is a leap across the abyss. It is the moment you leap into another body. I am a body plus. A body plus trauma, plus illness, plus pollen, plus spores, plus caretakers and friends and loved ones and wild kin. I am interested in the material incursions that are irreversible, that stain me green, that atrophy my mouth, that teach me how to eat sunlight, how to survive at all costs. Here, world, let me burn the bridge to my old body on my way into your body. I am ready to risk new shapes. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> to me, is the, the essence of the fact that the human being is not, we, we talk about individuality when you said that, where is the energy in the air or in the lungs, right? Where is the life of vital force? We are made of 98% of bacteria, virus, and microbes. <laughs> I mean, we are a constant, like, orgy of, like, a big party of creatures in us mm-hmm. creating a, our sense of self. And yes. And yet, like, we have what we call healing spaces. Like, when you go to our hospitals, it's all about sterilizing, isolating, yeah. isolating, and disrupting any kind of rationality. We've gone so far in the direction of that kind of individual healing that is outside of any relational uh, network of connections. Yeah. And... I mean, it feels like we've gone in the wrong, I mean, wrong. Yeah, uh, in a very in bizarre a very direction. bizarre way to seek healing in a way. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. So it, it, feels, it feels like, well, you know, if you realize, so my favorite metaphor is the spider in its web. So extended cognition researchers at MIT have been showing, there's new research every day, pretty much, that spiders' cognition is not in its brain or its body. It extends into its web. And if you damage part of the web, it acts as if it had a stroke. And so human beings are like this. Most animals have some amount of extended cognition. And what I like to think is that because we are only self through other, through constant intaking of otherness to very materially, metabolically build our bodies, we are, you know, our minds are not in our heads. Minds are territories we inhabit that multiple beings inhabit. And so if you're trying, you know, that's why the therapeutic model sometimes seems too small for me. Like if a mind is a territory that many beings are inside of, how can two human beings in a sterile room solve the problem (laughs) that is constituted by a whole web of wild kin? That, you know, I sometimes like to think that if you're having a bad day, perhaps it's because part of your web has been frayed somewhere else. Perhaps a forest has been had 200 trees cut down. And that's part of your extended brain, your extended body. Um, and that's what's agonizing to realize, to wake up to, and also very empowering. Because then all of a sudden, you know, I have an incurable illness. There's no pill that if you give it to my quote unquote individual body will fix it. But what if healing didn't have to happen inside of this skin silhouette? What if that happened in my vasculature of relations, my web of kin? What if it happened to something else and then flowed back into me? So it's a way of you know, widening, creating a more generous ecosystem where healing can happen. I was talking to a scientist who studies patterns in nature. 
and how they get stronger over time. You know, how a human is always born and develops as a human from these initially omnipotent cells. How do we always achieve, you know, the human morphology when each cell begins as like a potentiality to form anything? Um, mm-hmm. And I asked, well, then how do you change that? How, how, how do you break the patterns? What if the patterns are bad? And he said, it's when there's a block, when something can't happen, when there's a disability, that's when the pattern shifts. That's when it has to experiment with something else. And of course, we can think about these experimentations as disability or as, as being wrong, as being non-normative in our brains and our bodies. But what they really are, I think, are invitations to experiment with other ways of being. And for me personally, I'm very disabled. I mean, I go in and out of different moments of time and di- needing different types of care, but I always need a caretaker. And so I'm always exiled from this idea of wholeness and rugged individualism. I'll never be self-sufficient. And yet, what if that invitation was a way of making me related, of inviting in relationality and community? That opening was actually a way of building community. <laughs> um, and I sometimes think our disabilities, our experimentations with these blocks are ways of creating more risky, more generative relationships and collaborations with people and with beings we wouldn't necessarily choose to interact with if we were well and normal-bodied. Right, right. Yeah, and also the relationship to discomfort and pain. There is yeah. something about our, our modern society that we are just allergic to discomfort and anything, yeah. healing, it means comfort. And there is an addiction yeah. to that. And Healing is reducing the pain, right? That's been seen like that's the first thing you do. And maybe the pain is like the trail we need to follow. Um, Yeah, I sometimes think about, you know, if your limb goes numb, it's numb. I think sometimes we've, we've conflated, you know, wellness, the lack of pain with actual disassociation and numbness. And the truth is when you're waking back up to your full aliveness, your full related interstitial co-being you know when when your limb comes back away it's going to prickle it's going to hurt so we need to move through that moment where where everything hurts really badly yeah there's no other way it seems like we really need to face that and i wonder also if you see that in a collective way as well that collectively we need to feel and and see and meet those discomfortable stories or history or places where things became fixed in a specific shape. And, and I wanted to add another thing connected to this. When somebody is sick in this community, this indigenous community, the community gather all around and people try to understand, well, we are sick and try to understand how can we heal? There is no individual yeah. illness. Well, this is what I think about a lot. So I'm really interested in the fact that across cultures, dance and communal dance and trance states were ways of moving stuck energy and approaching certain kinds of ills, be they spiritual, psychic, or personal. And that these experiences were never about an individual. They were about a communal experience where the energy of the pain was dispersed through a concatenation of bodies. And sometimes I think that trying to hold trauma in one body doesn't work. You need to grab onto 10 other bodies so you can all work it together. You know, you can, so you become like the hand as part of a greater body. 
I really believe, and not in an abstract metaphorical way, that dance is the way to do this. Very, very simply that we need to dance more and touch more so that we can begin to feel things disperse. You know, when you have real a lot of pressure on like one beam of wood, it can break. But if you have a lot of other beams, suddenly the pressure is distributed. So how can we create actual bodily situations where we can distribute pressure together? Mm. How? I'm not sure. This is something I'm looking for right now as we, you know, I don't know if we're coming out of COVID, but as people are treating COVID as having been done and we're gathering more, I've been thinking about how do we create, you know, I'm not super interested in like festival culture, you know, in a a kind of, because I also think that's been overly conflated with this idea of the individual healing, that everything needs the medicine rather than how do you be the medicine? You know, I'm a little allergic to the psychedelic renaissance, you know, let's first learn how to be medicine before we become these capitalistic machines that are always extracting the heroic dose so we can change and optimize ourselves. Um, So I'm much more interested in like in your community of people who aren't chosen or ordered off the menu. How can you gather your neighbors, your people to eat food and to dance together? I don't know what that looks like, but I'm trying to think about it in my own community right now. I remember in France a few years ago going down on a neighborhood in a little town and everybody brings their pot and sits on the streets and share a meal. That is a celebration. That is a way of being. It can be as simple as that. I think so. I think that food is is the connective tissue of life. And sharing food is one of the oldest customs across cultures. It's a way of breaking down differences. You do just, we all need to eat. We all need to eat food that probably is grown where we are. Can we all learn how to do that? Can we dance together? Can we garden together? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, we live in the Western, in a modernized world. It's so much about rationality, about understanding, (laughs) about linearity. And in your own journey, you're confronted with something that is not rational, is not something you can fix. It's not something you can even understand, like, what have you learned from that? Yeah, I, so to offer a little background to people here who might not know me or my story, I am the survivor of very intense early childhood abuse. And I have a series of genetic issues that are incurable and are causing my body to break down at a much higher, faster pace than normal bodies. And there's no cure. Um, so there are ways in which I've been exiled from healing narratives where you get better, <laughs> where you heal. And the, you know, and as someone who's tried every trauma therapy there is, knowing that the trauma probably makes the physical issues worse, I've never been able to properly integrate it or complete it. So I'm stuck in this journey, not stuck. I'm in a journey with no arrival. And what I've realized is there isn't any arrival. The arrival is extinction. You know, and, and people say like, yeah, we're evolving. Well, every being evolves into extinction. What you really want to do is get into your body in this present moment, embraced by the future and by the past, by your ancestors, by your future progeny, and feel that present moment and not try to progress. That progression is always leading off the edge of the cliff. And so for me, I've I've tried to get okay with being a compost heap, with decaying, with not progressing, with moving backwards. And with moving backwards as a way of seeing something different than other people. That sometimes we need people in our culture who are seen from a slightly different vantage point. 
Wow. wow. You yeah. bring one of my favorite lines I heard you to say, I want to become good compost. That's yeah. I, I am decaying. So, you know, compost is gross, but it's good soil that grows many oh. other things. So if I'm breaking down, something I think about a lot is I have lots of stories I want to write. I probably won't live long enough to write them all. But if I create an idea compost heap, maybe other people can grow them. That Mm -hmm. the idea of the individual author is a product of written culture. It's recent. That for most of human history, morality was relational and community. Storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. A story belonged to a community over millennia. It was didn't belong to a singular author. Right. And it belonged to a place. We were just filming in Hawaii and we met this old Hawaiian storyteller and he's like I can't tell you the story here we have to go to the place where the story belongs (laughs) where the story has been told for generations story is context dependent a story is like mycorrhizal fungi you can't take mycorrhizal fungi out of their ecosystem and have them make sense they don't have like a body plan you pour them into a forest and they become a map of relationships a good story is a map of relationships in a specific place so you have to go to that place to see all the trees, the elementals, the beings that are part of that story. That's, wow, it, that's yeah. it. And I just wonder, like, again, learning about indigenous cultures, how different they relate and their language doesn't speak to domination, doesn't speak to linearity. Everything is cyclo. And, and yet in our modern society, everything has become rational and linear. Yeah. And how much of that has to do with raising our gods above life and being disconnected from life, being disconnected from rationality? Like what, what are your, uh, there's, you know, there's so many origins to our current Euro patriarchal mess. You know, we can tell so many different stories about how it happened and they're interesting, but the desire for a singular origin is a product of Europatriarchal <laughs> epistemology. So we have to complicate that cause and effect idea of linear time and progression and being able to map and see everything. I'm going to try and explain something. So this type of thinking is not global. It comes from a very particular point. And then it, through colonialism, through the tentacular materialities of colonialism spreads. But it begins in the Mediterranean basin and Europe. And it begins this moment where Platonism, the split between mind and matter that gets theologically rearticulated as spirit and body, and then rearticulated again in Cartesian mind and matter. People think that, you know, material reductionism is like not theological. It's just Christian theology rearticulated. <laughs> that, you know, modern scientistic thinking is very Christian, actually, um, problematically so. And so this schism, this break happens at a moment in time at the end of the Bronze Age, as far as I can see, when there are massive volcanic eruptions, there are huge climatological shifts, there's huge droughts, and there's social chaos, and all the five major empires collapse. It's called a collapse. There are a lot of theories about why it happened. What seems clear is that populations experience massive genocide and die-off, and they were dislocated from their land. So there was huge cultural body trauma. What happens in a body that's traumatized? One experiences to disassociate your mind and your body split. So I sometimes think that this whole 2000 years, 3000 years is a trauma response that gets rearticulated as culture to a very understandable moment in time when a people experience radical trauma and need to figure out in their spiritual stories and their narrative stories, how to understand that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
So beautiful. Thank you for that reminder that, you know, how we search for the single explanation and one point that, well, put the things together so we can actually understand. But it's so much, there's so much more freedom in living in what you're inviting us in a way that there might not be cause and effect and learning to appreciate the complexity versus the singular one-pointed explanation. When you said nature, we were asking, what's the word in Hawaiian for nature? And uh, <laughs> like, we don't have a word for nature. There is no such a thing, right? Because, you know, the indigenous languages, we're not at the center of life and we're not separate. It's like I am speaking now through the wind or the wind is speaking through me. And there's that interplay that yeah. has existed for, you know, 50, 60,000 years, that kind of rationality that hasn't been disrupted until colonization. I actually think that it's still living in our landscapes. So we see in many cultures that the landscape is a mnemonic device, and it's actually part of how you remember, that the land remembers. I was talking with one of my favorite writers, Monk and McGann, who writes about Irish indigenous language and how it is embedded, environmentally embedded in landscape, like song lines, and how, you know, sometimes like most of the people have been killed or their language has been erased, the land remembers for you. That you start to dialogue with the land, it will have information for you about how to begin that dialogue again. Right where you are, even if you're in a city, there's soil deep under the concrete. There's land that wants to be speaking. The whole world is full of voices that are talking. We have to actually, something I think about all the time is sensory gating and neural pruning, which is that we receive so much sensory stimuli all the time that if we experienced it all, we'd go mad. But it used to be in indigenous cultures and cultures that were more environmentally sustainable and responsive, that that gating happened where you began to homogenize your reality and your expectations and take out other things. So you could like hear your name in a crowd had to do with reading the environment with seeing, with distinguishing one plant and a sea of plants, one shift of wind through the leaves, smelling something that let you know that there was danger now, the way we neurally prune ourselves has to do with culture and with anthropocentric expectations. So what we're tuning out is the world. That takes wow. effort. So sometimes I want to say that it's actually not about effort. We don't have to like strive hard to hear these other voices or wake back up to them. It's actually about relaxing. Can we relax into madness, like a little bit of madness and hearing voices? What would it be to let ourselves hear voices again? So I've been reading about how children have this type of thinking that's much more suited to solving riddles and experimenting and seeing options and puzzles that people can't see. It's called lateral thinking, where you make connections that aren't expected. Actually, one way that adults get this back is by drinking. So there is a theory that drinking has been part of our evolutionary adaption because it sometimes lets us think like children again. But I was thinking about lateral thinking, which is the most experimental, novel type of thinking. You know, you can see the answer to the riddle. You can see the way out when all the doors are closed. You get it not by striving really hard, but by shutting down your central cortex. Um, you, you do it actually by kind of relaxing. It's like kind of like gestalt consciousness. Right. Yeah. In the past, through dance, through rhythm, where we would remove from the rational and just drop into trance and 
syncing our hearts through rhythm was, was yeah, a way to exactly. communicate and and feel safe. <laughs> you know, that that is a safety when yeah. you know it's like it's not just my heart beating, but it's part of the pulse mm. of life and everything surrounds me. I used to live in Colombia, South America, and this indigenous tribe, and it was many, many years ago, I do not know who they were, but when a baby died, they came and did a performance and explained their stuff. In their little community, and these were like jungle people, when the baby died, they had two lines, and they wrapped the baby and held the baby, and each person, it was all women, and each woman did an individual circle and then circled around the circle and kept passing this baby, and it went for hours, and it was so I just thought of what struck me was that there's an individual circle and then this whole huge collective circle and beyond, because I don't, like I say, I don't even know, I don't know words for it, but just that simple dance was so profound. And the fact that it went on so long. So that's all. Just thank you so much. Thank you, Sylvia. And you also bring something up that I've talked about that we've forgotten how to channel, how to let ourselves be ridden by divine forces or be possessed. And so that becomes madness because we don't have containers. We don't have circles around us to help, you know, I sometimes say that rot, you know, rot is what happens when you don't have a container. Fermentation is what happens when you have a container. So you can create something nutritious and consciousness shifting when you have a container. And the difference is just a shape. And that I think madness that is destabilizing and destroys your life is what happens when you don't have a container to let yourself be possessed. You don't have people around you dancing to help you keep that energy flowing. And so I sometimes think, like, how do we learn how to let ourselves be ridden again by the gods? Let ourselves be mad. Can we be mad together? I had a friend ask me recently, he said, can we walk around the block and I'll be mad and you'll hold me? And then you'll we'll walk around the block and you'll be mad and I'll hold you. And it was one of the best things I've been asked in forever. I thought, like, we need to be asking each other this all the time. Can I be mad for an hour? Will you help me with that? Yeah. I mean, I also, also sometimes think that nonsense is what I'm aiming for. I'm actually not aiming for sense making. That nonsense is the way that you actually begin to talk to crows and mountains. And that I'm more interested in the sibilance and the polyphonic like like resonance of it in your body than what it means. How does it make your body feel rather than what do you think? And just trust that like a spider web, the dew will catch. Like whatever catches, whatever one word or one phrase catches on your spider web is what was supposed to stay. Yeah, I'm aiming for a kind of nonsense, I think. I speak crow badly, I speak mountain badly, but I try. And that's the important thing is because we're so inside this culture of perfectionism, we're like, oh, I don't know how to speak crow, so I can't speak it. Well, then you're never going to have a relationship with that crow. Speak crow badly, speak salamander badly. Do it, just try. (laughs) And English language is so linear and the madness is what helps us kind of transcend the limitations of the language. It comes from that place. Yeah. I no longer feel limited by the words or the meaning making that my mind is so habituated to constantly try to find the meaning of it. I really loved when you were talking about dance, kind of bringing community together. And also for me recently, it's been a huge thing of redefining dance in a way. Um, I did a movement class at my school and the teacher had a big emphasis on like, everything is dance. We're in constant dance. It doesn't need to be like what we assume dance to be. And like one of the things that I was thinking of too, that when someone 
brought up just like having food together. Like the school that I go to, it's a working college. And so we have like a farm and the farm, we farm the food and then we bring the food to the kitchen and then the food from the farm gets used for all of our meals. And so it's kind of something where it's like communal dance of like, we're dancing from the farm to the kitchen, to the table. And then the food goes back into the compost at the end of the day. And also with my movement class, we did a lot of like, we were just encouraged to be really silly and in a state of like nonsense. We would do certain exercises where there was one where we were like crawling on the ground. And if you like (laughs) crawled next to someone, you had to like stop and like just put your heads together. And in the moment I was like, wow, I probably look bizarre right now. But at the same time, it was like, I never felt more connected to people when I was on like all fours and just like crawling and putting our heads up next to each other. And it was just so nice. So yeah, I really just like loved hearing again, it is about the power of dance and and in all different ways. There's so many parts of that that are really exciting. I, I think I'll take them all in kind of a disordered way. One is that friend and colleague David Abram always says like, we learn to be in our bodies by imitating bodies that are not human. <laughs> you know, like when we start to move like Heron, maybe we understand the sensory world of heron a little bit better can we move like the turtle can we move like the wind through aspen leaves and that it's it's these you know ways are not typical dance that we look we learn to be human by learning how to be other beings that if you look at many the welsh mabinogian stories of taliesin and all of these bards and magicians they get transformed into different animals and that's how they gain their prophetic magical skills is like being a grain of corn being a salmon being a deer Um, so I always say that, you know, practice being other beings. Like I often have to lie on the ground and try and imagine that I'm like a mycorrhizal system where every part of me has a mouth where I digest my food by entering it. What would that be like? Or sometimes I, you know, sit on the river and look up at the seagulls and try and imagine what it would be like to be spinning like that and then move my own body. You have to risk looking mad, though. You have to risk looking crazy to do this type of bodily transformations. The other part, though, is so my body doesn't work correctly, and I'm always stumbling or hobbling or in some way crippled. But that's constant dancing. That that way of holding your body up and adapting to circumstances is dance. The holy hobble, the sacred stumble, the way the way that disabled bodies keep moving is inherently dancing. That I think disabled bodies are always dancing because they're always having to adapt to different circumstances. Yeah. Thank you. I love that. <laughs> catching yourself from falling. If you're always falling, you always have to be catching yourself. And it's fall and catch falling. And then sometimes you have to let yourself totally fall. Mm-hmm. Learning how to fall well is actually, if you're in improvisation or acrobatic work or any kind of real dance, you have to learn how to fall. Can we learn how to fall better? How can we meet the ground so softly that it just takes our body. My question would be, what generated or started the Christian belief or disbelief of separation? There is a rising thematic schism, bifurcation between mind and matter that happens in many different religions in the Mediterranean basin and many different cultures. The interesting thing about Christianity, which is what I write and research about primarily, and I teach a whole course on this question, so I don't think I could properly answer it in two minutes, is that actually the biodiversity of many different Jewish practices that Yeshua or Jesus came from were pretty animistic and pretty embodied. But when he gets co-opted by the very empire that killed him and then translated into Greek, 
we lose all of that pantheistic eroticism, all of that really embodied environmentally focused like storytelling. And what we get is we get the Romanized Platonistic version of Christianity. So I oftentimes say that Christianity is this deracinated retelling of the story of a man they killed. And it's a really problematic game of telephone that happens. This has been the focus of The Flowering Wand, my book that just came out, and my novel that comes out this summer. Um, so I, yeah, I, I can't hope to answer it in two seconds when I could talk about it for probably 40 days. My personal theory is there's a movement between orality and literacy, between oral culture and alphabetic culture that is really crystallized by the Greeks. And the Greeks then, you know, the conquest of Alexander into Roman culture paired with alphabetic literacy allows for a total consciousness shift between a relational experience where knowledge is context dependent and relational and always adapting to a type of knowledge that can be extracted, written down, and then seen as an object. So there's a real consciousness <laughs> shift when there's a technology shift. So that's definitely the through line in my writing is saying that the Greeks perfect the alphabet and the alphabet allows them to colonize other languages and other places. They need, can uproot words from people take them into their own language and pretend like they're objects that can be accumulated as resources. This, of course, is theoretical. It's a creative idea. Um, there are a lot of other writers who postulated that the movement between orality and literacy is the big shift. I do always cushion it with the fact that we are environmentally embedded beings, and this shift is happening in a time when there are volcanic eruptions, drought, and massive, massive traumatic events. So I do think that we can't say that it's totally about the technology. I think sometimes the technology is a response to this experience of knowledge as being really, really ephemeral, of populations dying off. Like, how do you keep your, your words alive? Maybe you have to write them down. So I, I, I don't want to totally demonize the alphabet and written culture, but every technology casts a shadow. And I think that this technology has cast a big perceptual shadow. The Alphabet and the Goddess, Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. And Walter Ong's Orality and Literacy are all great books that really look at this shift. I think about that all the time is, is what are these technological shifts allowing us to think? And what are they also obscuring? Because, you know, technology always makes something visible and then sometimes something less visible. So it's, it's hard to see when you're so close to it. This was a perfect cue-in to um, what I wanted to reflect on, on this technology, because I live in a small village in southern Portugal, and I tend to think that our ancestors were pirates, so it's very inspiring. <laughs> Already transgressing, so to speak. Anyway, we have purchased the ruin of a 2008 meant-to-be spa, and that's given us a lot to think about because this space is just a structure of concrete that was you know, foreclosed by bankruptcy. So it has this, you know, fantastic sort of gathering of accumulated wrongs, so to speak. And we were also looking for something that would bring vitality in contrast to that grief, which we most certainly want to compost, as you say. And it's a wonderful container for it. So I really appreciate how you spoke about all this. And I came across the fact that the World Wide Web was gifted, actually, in 1993 in a two-page document. 
And that struck me from a technological standpoint as absolutely unprecedented, given the atmosphere where we were already transacting and commodifying everything. And from your reflections just a moment ago, I thought, what if this was a way of meeting, not matching, but meeting the atomic mushroom with a mycelian network? And that, and that we are actually experiencing it. Our organisms are experiencing it, are being transformed by it as we speak right now in this kind of experience. But we are, what did you say, sensory gated, you know, even towards technology and are already applying all these mannequin sort of judgments into an experience that without it, this right here would not be possible. So I was wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah. So I'm writing a paper right now, actually, an essay about haunted technology and about there are different types of technology. And so let me let me feel my way into this. So I'm a disabled person and I say disabled and I like that. And I differently abled feels tokenistic and weirdly like smug to me. I'm totally happy with other people using that term, but I use disabled. <laughs> um, I like to disarticulate things. I like to be dis, to be like to the side, off, queer. Um, so I will accept that. And I'm kept alive by technology and by technology that has been created through extractive, unconsensual experiences with other cultures and with actual practical ecosystems. And it keeps me alive. So I'm kept culpable. There's no moral purity. There's no physical purity. And technology is vital to my existence. And I'm very, very allergic to a kind of eco-fascistic impulse to, you know, go back to the, how it was originally. Like, you know, let's go back to our little cute villages because I'm like, well, I would die. <laughs> um, so are you saying you want to get rid of me? So technology is important. We're entangled with it. We cannot get rid of it. The thing I am interested in is can you use technology that was created through harm and have it not be haunted by the original harm? And what does it mean that all of the science that we depend upon medically, practically has been created through violent means? That I, you know, I was reading about how a lot of Nazi science has actually been just kind of like quietly accepted by the medical community and still used and cited all the time. What does it mean that that's threaded through our medical practice, that it's still there? Is our medicine haunted? Is our technology haunted? And what does that mean? I like to think that matter is bumptious and agential. Matter has agency. And if that matter has been in a bad place and has been unconsensually removed from where it wanted to be or produced in such a way that was, you know, murderous, well, perhaps it has an agency right now in the results it's producing. <laughs> you know, we, we, we think of like cause and effect as being pretty straightforward, but, you know, you cannot separate the means from, from the ends in a situation like that. So I've been thinking about like, how is the medicine that keeps me alive haunted? That's amazing. And I think I would just add one small comment when you talked about falling well, you know, it really resonated with something we've been talking about, which is sort of the renewal of the promise of intergenerational transmission, because in effect, we're all online ancestors. Yeah. People of all different ages right now, we're all online ancestors. And perhaps that will, you know, spark 
the permission to fail. Something that's a little bit crazier is sometimes I think that we're doing some wild, unintentional hospicing final death experience where we're giving away our information so that it doesn't exist anywhere. Like I oftentimes think that if the grid went down and we were extinct, the last 2,000 years would be gone. That we used to keep our information alive in relationships, in our brains, in, in our culture, but we're giving away our information. It's like what you do when you're dying. You start giving away your stuff. We're giving everything away to this, into the digital world. We're feeding our information to this digital world, and we're feeding it to something we don't know what it is or where it's going. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's, it leaks well past human dualisms. Love it. Thank you. I have a question about viruses and I work in medicine. To me, it seems there's just this rise of the viruses on the planet. And, you know, I want to under, I want to see if you could comment about viruses in our body cohabitating with viruses. I think you've said it already, but I just wanted to hear more. Also, this idea that perhaps viruses aren't of this planet that they're coming from other places. Um, it's so hard to work in medicine with the concept of kind of doing war with them. And so we need another paradigm in medicine to understand them. So that's my question. Thank you, Chris. So first, I want to problematize this very popular misconception that viruses are bad. They're a very small number of the billions of viruses that exist that do damage to human bodies. So we've conflated viruses with evil, with bad. And that's a problem. Secondly, we think there's a rise in viruses because we're looking for them. They've always been around. I oftentimes say that, you know, gods and deities disappeared to reappear under the microscope. That we used to, you know, have Dionysus, but Dionysus was a fungal god where we couldn't see yeasts under a microscope, you know? So viruses have always been around shifting tides of viruses. They are the invisible puppeteers of this of this earth. In fact, you know, Atlantic writer Ed Young, who's one of my favorite science writers, writes a lot about how viruses are actually integral to developing human immune systems. And, to you know, oftentimes they're if you're infected with one virus, you're protected against another. It's very strange. We don't totally understand it yet. So, you know, my favorite thing to say is that there were a viral incursion into early proto-mammalian beings created the possibility to develop the syntrophoblast layer of the placenta. Yeah. So, you know, I like to say that, you know, birth is not female, birth is viral. <laughs> um, it is the product of a viral incursion that we are, we are in concert with viruses. Our immune systems are molded by a complicated dance with them. That in fact, if we don't have exposure to certain viruses, we don't develop our immune systems. That being said, there are viruses right now that seem to have a lot of information to share because we haven't been listening. And the way they share it is anarchic, is not human. It does not follow our general rule book. And that can be terrifying to witness and be part of. You know, my body is susceptible to more viruses and bacteria than other people's bodies. And I sometimes think that I'm an instrument and they are using me to play a music that is inhuman. And the way that music comes through me is unpleasant and terrible. But it's this profoundly animistic experience. A lot of times people say, like, what is animism? I say, it is your consciousness plus a virus that's in your body. It's the fever you're experiencing. It's, it's, it's the sweat when you have an infection. Like, that is the music of another being playing through your body. 
So what I'm wondering about is there's a frontier of neuroscience, for instance, like the Vegas system. When you talk about the indigenous dancing and everything and the little bit we know about it, that seems to be where this originates and we're learning, you know, breathing techniques, etc. But is it just that this is the frontier? And the other part of that is the amygdala. And I'm wondering from what you were saying, has that evolved from the indigenous or pre-Judo-Christian, uh, etc.? Because the amygdala is where two things, where trauma is held and it's held in images. And if it's held in images in this negative way, could it not also be trances, etc.? And the last part of this is whether or not from the beginnings, the origins of human beings, whether there has been trauma and is it indigenous within us, trauma, murder, and every single thing that is what we consider negative in human beings. I kind of think with all the positive, I also think that that has been inherently human and always will be. Now, can we change it in a wave of culture? But my thought is that there are always going to be individuals, and again, neuroscience, we know that most of it is trauma, but then there is also the brain stuff. So I just wanted the correlation that you thought. And again, this is not my field. So thank you. Well, thank you for asking. I first want to really problematize the conflation of brains and mind and trauma and physicality and say that, you know, bioessentialism, this idea that we're going to find the proof and the residue of everything in the body is proving to be <laughs> less and less possible. I'm really interested in the neuroanthropologist Terence Deacon, who has kind of said the science will not prove this. We have to think about this in a different way, that there are absences, there are black boxes we can't enter. You know, there's there was a whole idea that we keep memory traces in the brain. It turns out it's bullshit. And as someone who really, really works with trauma, I think there are, we can see things happening in the brain and then we can extrapolate an explanation, but that doesn't mean that the two are correlated. And I think that a lot of our science is quite bad <laughs> and it's that we're creating explanations. We're dressing up like a description as explanation, but it's a description of something we don't understand. So I, I want to say that neuroscience is, I'm a person who loves science, but I also don't want to turn it into a religion that can't, you know, it's a way of asking questions. It's not a set of dogmas. And it needs to ask more and more questions and not pretend like it always has the answer. So I think there's this attempt to locate trauma and figure out what it's doing particularly. And I think that really is just a desire for a God of matter. We've been, you know, we really want to find ourselves back in our bodies. So I, I, I honor that impulse to find the way, you know, the wave is not the water. The wave is the energy move using the water to show up. And so I sometimes think, think that trauma is the God of embodiment who's using our bodies to create the wave. It's just the surface bubbles of something much bigger than the human. You know, I also say that we are not the children of the garden. We are not the children of Eden. We are the children of the crater, the Chicxulub crater extinction event that destroyed most of life on earth and let proto-mammalian life diversify to produce our morphology. That if we look at the five major extinction events on earth, most of life that's ever existed is extinct now. And every extinction event opened up the space for new beings to diversify. That extinction events open up the space for experimentation. 
So we are, you know, if we were created by a big bang, I would expect that we would feel the bang in our bodies. If we were created by an extinction event, I would expect that that residual trauma would be our inheritance. But I don't think we know how to let trauma use our bodies. We don't know how to dance with it anymore. It gets stuck. And so that's something in a very personal high stakes way I am working with. And I think that we can learn a lot in a kind of physical, scientific way of asking questions, but we have to widen our epistemological frames. We need a bigger toolbox. And, you know, that there are different ways of asking questions and we will maybe receive more information about trauma through storytelling, through trance, through dance and science. That it's an ecology of practices I'm looking for, not a hierarchy of practices. It's WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. My question is about AI, because you were talking about symbiosis and how we as humans need to, like, you know, kind of the topic of this starting off was that we need to incorporate like different microbiomes and like have a symbiotic relationship with maybe like fungus or other plants. And immediately like current events that are happening, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, like transhumanism and like how we're becoming kind of like cyborgs, you know, we're more attached to our phones, like in the current level, but like in the future, we could be more like augmented with AI. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on not necessarily if that's good or bad, but maybe if we can take good aspects of becoming symbiotic with fungus into like the techno realm. It's a really interesting question. It's something I'm actively thinking a lot about. I just read James Bridle's Ways of Being, which is about technology as nature and beginning to really look at what that could mean. Um, I didn't agree with a lot of the landing spots of that book, but I do think it's a fantastic massaging of this question. Um, I am worried, not worried, but I am curious about how much energy we are putting into technology that's actually very materially fragile. And that I think that there's a little bit of hubris and childish naivete about this idea in transhumanism and AI because it presupposes structures, oppressive structures that keep the material existence of this technology alive continuing and it erases that material scaffolding. (laughs) Um, And so that I find to be tricky. And the fact is that if climate change happens, it's going to be hard to keep these servers going, to keep these things going. So I think that it seems like rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic, thinking, talking about it. I want to be like, okay, it's interesting. I'm not saying it's bad, but it doesn't seem materially sustainable. Like, you know, and but everything is technology. So, you know, or, I'm not problematizing AI or any of these things. I'm just saying that they seem very fragile to me, actually. I know people are very worried about, like, these things and robots and transhumanism, but I, I'm kind of not as worried because I think they're too fragile. <laughs> I don't think that we can materially keep them alive at the rate that we are. Although there is, of course, the paperclip metaphor, which I don't know if anyone here has heard of, which it is terrifying, which is that if you train an AI to make paperclips and you train it to be the best at making paperclips, if you let it keep going, it will destroy the entire earth to make paperclips. So there is, of course, the situation whereby we, we make a paperclip monster. Um, it's possible. Um, these are things that I'm thinking about. Yeah, I just wanted to first just share a reflection, which is the question that was asked initially about what is the how? How do we come together symbiotically to become a, a mutual holding 
feels like it's being answered in this conversation to me. And especially because the conversation is happening here and the internet as this kind of um, invisible mycelium for our consciousness here. And because it's so intellectually rigorous, this conversation, it feels worth noting that there's something very somatic also happening and maybe something you could call spiritual. And I guess if I have a question, it's how do you approach that because you are so intellectually rigorous and also so embodied and oriented towards the body and you're also extending this invitation to minds and bodies. And also it seems that there's a dualism there that we've created, right? Mind and body as if those are two things. And how do you walk that line for yourself and for the invitation you extend to let people know that you can be engaged, that you can think in this critical way, and also that this is church or that this is primal dance? And where do those two meet so that the people who are in their heads can come down into their bodies and the people who are more somatic can also feel like they grasp this in a way that's understandable? Mm. Well, I think that because my body doesn't work in unpredictable ways every day, it's always inviting me into presence. (laughs) And so every day I'm invited into a different type of physical experience. Like I don't have to take a psychedelic. I have nausea events that are psychedelic. And I can problematize them or I can let them work on me. I think that what I'm constantly trying to do is to temper my intellectual perambulations with really practical exercises that are not so prescriptive that they can't be adapted to your ecosystem. So I have some really, really simple exercises that I try and give to people that I'm like, pour it into your ecosystem like a mycorrhizal fungi, let it become a map of relationships. Let it take root there. I mean, what my one that I always bring up is my gathering of counsels, going outside, or if you're disabled, lying in bed, and really coming into presence with a five mile radius around your home and calling into your sphere of awareness, every being geological, fungal, folkloric, indigenous, animal, imaginary that lives in a five mile radius materially constitutes you and bring them into your council so that when you make decisions throughout your day, practical decisions, what to eat, where to step, what to do where to throw something out, you're realizing it's not just about you. It inflects the whole web of relations. That's the one I do. Although my favorite exercise lately, and this is well below my, because the thing is I live my life in a very unintellectual way is sometimes I can't dance because I have too much cardiac stuff going on. So I lie on the floor and I pretend I'm a sea anemone and I dance from a hinge and I pretend like I'm like something that's rooted that can't get up and jump. And then I danced with all my limbs up. (laughs) Um, I learned this because I really damaged my leg. It took months to heal. And so, but I needed to keep dancing. So I would like sit on the floor and do my C&Mini dance. And I really think that learning how to be physically goofy is perhaps the most important spiritual practice we have right now. If I have one thing to give to people, it's let us be physically goofy. Let us inhabit our physical humor more. I think that's where God lives. Wow. That's beautiful. Thank you. Being upright is really overrated. Yeah, I say that every morning. (laughs) I was wondering, Sophie, would you like to read something at the end? You mentioned you had a prayer, maybe something. Mm, Yeah, I have a prayer that I've done for my courses. Um, Yeah, so it's called A Risky Promise. Together we vow to work by addition, not subtraction. 
honoring that bad stories and good stories can meet and intermingle and breed new microbial possibilities in the compost heap. We acknowledge that colonialism is wielded by empire, Christianity is wielded by empire, has acted like an antibiotic, killing off all other narratives in the cultural gut. We take this responsibility into our body, like an oyster mushroom, learning how to digest radioactivity. We thread our metabolisms together to learn how to eat toxicity. We seek a probiotic of stories to cure narrative dysbiosis, a polyphonic meshwork of voices that refuses to reduce itself to European harmonics. We strive loudly, wetly, jointly for generative clamor. The world is a simultaneity of differences, and we enjoy the gradient that occurs when we place ourselves alongside otherness. The gradient between the summit and the valley draws this stream into being. We stream into being. We let our nuclei flow from the top of the food chain down into the pinprick mind of the tiniest nematode. We practice hyphal flexibility and narrative multiplicity when confronted with dualisms. We always pick both, and then we ask for more. When we are incorrectly confined to a fictional self, we affirm that we are a we. We split into a thousand branching fungal hyphae. We do not get stuck. We do not sterilize. We do not exclude. Neither do we apologize for or resurrect bad beliefs. We mulch them with leftovers and rainwater. We add them onto the compost heap. We fuse and fork and explore and forage. We make slapdash compromises with other species. We speak grass badly. We speak tree badly. We speak ocean badly. But we do not stop asking questions. We ask, what ails the woodpecker? What ails the willow? What ails the ancestors? We have no heroes, only hydra heads. We do not need a thread through the labyrinth. We are the labyrinth. We align with the minotaur. We are ecstatic in our insolvability a refusal to be navigated by vanquishing heroes. We honor bothness. We honor bodiness. We trust that the best collaborations are permanent and involve the co-sharing of bodies. We risk losing touch with our old stories. All hail the overlap. All hail the rot. We are ready to escape the singular. Thank you, everyone. Sophie, where do people read you on a daily basis? I know you post often. I have a Substack, and I post there for free and also a paid one with more private content that's more vulnerable. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have my book that just came out, and I love to be bothered, so come bother me. That was Sophie Strand, and her new book is The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Trans-species magicians and rhizomatic harpists heal the masculine.
for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all magical mystery tour shows at soundcloud.com/wgdr. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>